Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Acts as we continue our study of this book and specifically as we continue to shadow uh, Paul and Barnabas on what is commonly known as their first missionary journey in the ancient world. Paul and Barnabas have been traveling around what is now uh, modern-day Turkey, proclaiming the good news to both Jew and Gentile, to both the religious and the irreligious, the non-religious. And it's a message that we have witnessed uh, be a, a dividing point for cities. But it's a message that slowly is beginning to transform the world. Not just the ancient world, not just the Roman Empire, but it is going to transform the world. And so we've been learning from what God has done. We've stood in awe over what God has done. And today I want us to be encouraged again, uh, not just by what God has done, but what He is doing and will do uh, through His church And through the gospel. And so Acts chapter 14 is where we find ourselves in our study of this book. Acts chapter 14, just the last uh, part of this chapter, verses 19 through 28. So listen as I read Acts chapter 14, starting at verse 19 through the end of the chapter. But Jews came from from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. And they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up. And he entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, and to Iconium, and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples." Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Recently, I have uh, begun to, well, I haven't begun to, I have, I've disconnected myself uh, from social media. And so if I was your Facebook friend and I am no longer your friend and you can't find me, it's not that I've unfriended you. just want to make that public, that I haven't unfriended anyone uh, you can ask me about the reasons for disconnecting from social media later. Uh, but one of the other things that I'm stopping doing, or at least uh, decreasing doing, is reading the comment sections on any article that I read on the internet. If you, 
If you have never read the com- comments section on an article, any article, don't, don't start. And, and if you have, well, you know why, you just need to stop. You need to quit. The comment section on any article uh, on the internet are so unhelpful and can be so unedifying. But one thing that I have noticed is that they are, in one way, so insightful about the culture and the opinions that are around us and the culture that we live in. I read an article recently, can't remember if it was written um, by a Christian or if it had Christian content in it, but I, I was reading the comment section and I was absolutely amazed at the degree of hate that was expressed in the comment section of this article that I read. And I know that online, and this is kind of one of the tragedies of online writing, blogging or whatever it may be, is that people say things online that they would never say to people face-to-face in person. And I realize that that's part of the phenomenon. But I think that the comment sections, and specifically that one and others that I've read, they do reflect in some small measure the increasing changing of our attitude towards our faith and towards what we believe. Robert George, who is a professor at uh, Princeton University, he was speaking at a Catholic, uh, a national Catholic prayer breakfast recently, and he said this statement, he said, the days of socially acceptable Christianity are over. It's a pretty bold statement, but I think he's right. And I think that our vocal objection to to practices such as abortion and other things that we see in our society and the backlash that we receive from our vocal rejection of those things is further evidence of this fact. This should certainly concern us, but it ought not panic us. It ought not surprise us. Because I'm here to remind you this morning from God's Word that the church will survive. And not just will the church survive, but the church is going to thrive in the midst of whatever lies before us as believers and followers of the Lord Jesus. There are just two things that I want us to to focus our hearts on for the next few moments as we look at this last piece of Paul's first missionary journey. And the first thing that I want us to think on is this, this truth. The church grows and is strengthened as it suffers for the gospel. The church grows and is strengthened as it suffers for the gospel. Now we could talk a lot about suffering. The Bible talks a lot about human suffering. But I'm not interested this morning, and we certainly don't have time this morning, to put together a, a full biblical theology of suffering. And that's not what Luke is doing here by recording for us these events in the life of Paul and Barnabas. Rather, what Luke is doing is he's reminding us of at least two things 
One, that the followers of Jesus will suffer, particularly we will suffer as we are obedient to God's call on our lives. And that contrary, secondly, that contrary to common assumption, and maybe even the hope of the world, suffering actually strengthens the church. Of course, we've talked about these themes. I mean, we, uh, the challenge of the book of Acts, and I've said this before, is that we are returning to themes that, that Luke has introduced to us uh, before. And we've talked about this theme of, of suffering in the church. We talked about it when we talked about uh, the character of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. And there I, I drew our attention to the fact that if we speak like Jesus, the world will hate you. And I also reminded our hearts that suffering always serves God's purposes. Well, today with those, those truths from Stephen's life in the back of our minds, we move on to Paul's life and to Paul's experience and to Paul's view of suffering and the church. Now, for those of you who have been here for a while and have followed uh, the journey, the narrative, the story of Paul and Barnabas as they've uh, walked all around the ancient world, will remember that last week, Paul and Barnabas were in this city of Lystra, this primarily non-Jew, primarily a Gentile city that was somewhat off the beaten path. Remember, they had fled to Lystra because there was an angry mob that had formed against them in the city of Iconium. And that was a couple weeks back. And you remember why the angry mob formed in Iconium? Because Paul was preaching the gospel. Because Paul was proclaiming the good news of Jesus come for man. In Lystra, the city where we find ourselves this morning, the reception uh, that they received in Iconium swung to the other extreme. Because in Lystra, remember from last week, it, they didn't want to kill Paul and Barnabas. They wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas. They thought they were gods. They thought they were the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, in mortal form. And so here, Paul and Barnabas, I wouldn't say basking, but they're dealing with the fact of uh, the city wanting to worship them, but that is all about to change. Because as we rejoin the story this morning, picking up from last week, they're still in the town of Lystra, but here comes into the town the same mob that chased them out of Iconium. They have traveled all the way from Iconium, and some of them have joined the crowd in Iconium. Some of them all the way from Pisidia, Antioch, which is a hundred miles away. They have joined this posse as they hunt down Paul and Barnabas. I mean, just, just think about that. This is one of those situations where you just step back and you say, Really? You hate him that much? And it's so easy, I think, for us to read Acts chapter 14 and to read specifically verse 19 in Acts chapter 14 and to just blow through it. 
They stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city. Don't let the brevity destroy the brutality of what happened here. These folks have walked, some of them a hundred miles. Just think about what they were talking about as they walked this long journey. They weren't just angry. They were enraged. And they come to this city, into this place of, of, of we said it last week, of common folk who were ready to worship Paul and Barnabas. And somehow, we're not told how, they turn the hearts of these common folks where suddenly they don't want to worship Paul anymore. They want to murder Paul. They want to join in on this lynch mob. And so, amidst all the ruckus and, and amidst the shouting, someone throws a rock. And it glances off of Paul. And someone throws another rock. And, and that one has a pretty good hit. And then someone throws another rock. And, and, and at first they're just bouncing off, but then one hits him in the head and it draws a little blood and, and that makes the crowd go wild. And so everyone starts throwing rocks and Paul, this small, unassuming Jewish scribe, is wilting. I mean, this is an R-rated scene that Paul is suffering for no other reason than he is preaching and proclaiming the gospel. And it's a scene that ends with Paul unconscious. They think he's dead. And so they drag him out of the city. We don't want a dead body decomposing in our city. They drag him out of the city, let the birds and the vultures deal with him. And why? Because he has proclaimed the judge of all the earth, the savior of sinners, the king who would return again for his people. Paul suffered. Paul was persecuted because the message that he proclaimed, the message of Jesus, is offensive. It is. It's, it's offensive. Jesus is the judge of human wickedness. He is the exposer of false righteousness. He is the determiner of truth. He is this bloody figure who died in order to deal with a wrath that we just can't comprehend, but a wrath that we deserved. And his followers are quick to turn from those things in the world and things in the culture that they deem unacceptable and impure and not honorable to the God who created them and the God who redeemed them. Brothers and sisters, though the context has changed, all these things are still true today. Well, thankfully for Paul, the story doesn't end with him lifeless on the outskirts of, of Lystra. For unexplainably, and we're not told how, the Lord gives him strength to continue. And seemingly, taking the violence in stride, he gets up, no doubt weak, no doubt sore and bloodied and bruised, and he continues his preaching tour, backtracking all the way that he has come. 
We can just imagine as he comes in to these cities where he's been before, where he's preached the gospel before, and he visibly looks like he's been stoned. You can imagine that one of the stories that was at the top of the, the, the time of sharing was what happened to him in Lystra. And Luke seems to point this out. As he says uh, here in Acts 14, Paul strengthened, encouraged, and said that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. See, the grace that God gave Paul in the midst of his circumstances, in the midst of this persecution and suffering, is something that strengthened people who either were fearing that it would happen to them or who had experienced it to some degree already. The church grows and is strengthened as it suffers for the gospel. And Paul's experience here in Acts chapter 14 just reminds us that the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. He didn't say, pick up your lawn chair and follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. We're seeing the very beginning of it here, but there's no doubt And we've seen it as we've studied other letters of Paul. As we study Paul, Paul thought of suffering as not just a part of his ministry, but as a significant piece of what he was to do. He was to suffer. And by extension, we as the church, as those who carry on the apostolic ministry and the apostolic teaching of Paul, We, in some sense, maybe not to the same degree, but we are called to the same. Let me read some passages for you. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 12, he says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 1, 29 and 30, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but should suffer for His sake. And then finally, Paul wrote to the Colossians in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church. Now that last one is a little bit confusing. Paul is not saying that in some way Christ's work for us, Christ's suffering for us, was deficient. And that Paul fills it up. He completes it. Paul's not saying that he needs to add to what Christ has done. But what he is saying is that he and his suffering and us and our suffering is the picture of Christ's suffering. It is the picture of the suffering servant that is spoken of In the book of Isaiah, Jesus came to serve, yes, but He came to suffer. And the church follows in that way. 
You see, the suffering of the saints not only accompanies the gospel, it proclaims the gospel. It is a copy, however flawed, of Christ's suffering. As one writer put it that I read this week, it puts on a a passion play before unbelievers. The conveyor of the message pictures the content of the message. And there's no doubt as we look through the history of the church that suffering plays an important part. It's a force for the spread of the church. It's not something that the church needs to go out and find. No, it will find us. But it's not something that we just need to endure and suck up and take. But it's something that, according to the Scriptures, we can actually rejoice in. I want us to stop for a moment there. We've kind of talked a lot about the passage and ask the question, what really, what effect really does this have on us as we sit here this morning? I mean, honestly, we don't suffer for the gospel. Certainly not like Paul suffered for the gospel. But in any way, do we suffer for the gospel? A couple things. Number one, we might begin, we might use God's word and its teaching here to just ask the question, why? Are we avoiding suffering at all costs? Are we not suffering because we are too silent? I don't know. Secondly, I think this passage is given for us because the fact of the matter is we may one day have suffering right before us. And if not us, adults who are sitting in this room, quite possibly our kids who are sitting here this morning. You see, the first century, at least Paul's first century world, wasn't a context for private faith. We have lived in large measure in a culture and in a world and in a context where our faith has easily been personal and private. And in fact, our world wants you to keep it that way. But those days may very well be ending We may or may not see the end of those days, but we need to know the truth. We need to gird ourselves up in the truth. Witness is central to who we are. So as we think about this passage, one, ask ourselves, yeah, why aren't we suffering? Two, we may one day suffer. We need to be prepared when that day comes. But number three, we are, in a sense, already suffering. We are, in a sense, already suffering. Let me give you three names. Dr. Miriam Ibrahim, Pastor Saeed Abedini, and Imran Masi. Those are two of your brothers and one of your sisters in the Lord Jesus. These are all have been in the news recently. 
Dr. Miriam Ibrahim is a Sudanese doctor who was sentenced to 100 lashes and death for refusing to recant her Christian faith. The only reason her sentence is delayed is because she just gave birth. And they won't execute a woman until she's been able to nurse her child for two years, and then she will be executed. Pastor Saeed Abedini is an American pastor from Idaho. He's an Iranian by birth, but he's an American pastor who's now imprisoned in Iran and has been for the past several years, sentenced to eight years of hard labor for sharing the gospel in that nation. And then Imran Masih is sentenced to life in prison in Pakistan after being falsely accused by his neighbor for burning a copy of the Quran. I've told this to you before, but Hebrews 13.3 Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are in the body. You see, Paul's experience, our own thinking about our own suffering, reminds us again that as a body, as a church, we are suffering today. And that should pain us. That should sober us. That should make us prayerful. As Paul's plight encouraged those in the first century Let these modern day saints encourage you and I to continue in the faith, to follow our suffering Savior, whatever the cost. That's the first thing I think God's Word draws our attention to this morning. But there's a second, and we'll end with this. Jesus is in the business of planting churches. Jesus is in the business of planting churches. I think this is another point that Luke wants to kind of put an exclamation point on as he tells us of Paul and Barnabas' travels, not just that suffering for the gospel is something that the church experiences and will strengthen and grow, but he focuses us in again on the beauty and the design and the importance of the church. And it may seem a funny thing to say that Jesus is in the business of planting churches, but it's something I think we need to say. Because there are some who would like to argue that surely as Christians, that there are more effective ways for us to go about our business, for us to do the work of the kingdom, rather than this institution called the church. Harold Camping uh, was a well-known Bible teacher. He recently passed away, but he came infamous for his failed attempts to predict the Lord's return, number one. But two, he also told the church on his radio program, a program that millions followed, that they needed to leave the church, that God was done with the church, that the church age was over. It was a controversy several years back. Brothers and sisters, Acts 14 and God's Word and the experience of Paul and Barnabas reinforce for us the fact that the church is not dispensable. 
that the church, the community of faith that we exist in is not just a temporary vehicle for a particular time, a particular place. It is God's design for making disciples. Paul and Barnabas had preached the gospel faithfully in these places. They had made converts in these places, but they had not yet done what Christ wanted them to do, and that is create churches. And so it's almost as if in these last verses, Luke reminds us that Paul and Barnabas' work wasn't done. They had gone through all these towns and proclaimed the gospel. They had created a ruckus. They had made converts. But now they backtrack. They go through every town. And what does he tell us that they do? They make churches. Paul on his bedroom wall had one of those maps with the pins, and he didn't have places he had visited. He didn't have converts he had made. He had churches that he had planted by God's grace and by God's help. And so these men go back through these towns, and they encourage them to continue in the faith. They appoint for them elders, and they connect them to local churches. Let's just look at those three things and then we'll be done. Number one, what does Luke say? That these were churches, these were communities that were founded upon the faith. It's not just your faith. Yes, you need to have faith. You need to have individual faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a faith. It's called the faith. It's called the tradition. It's called the deposit. It's called the teaching. It's called the truth in other places in Paul's writings. What it is, is it's the apostles' teaching. These churches were collecting letters. They were collecting Paul's letters. We have some of them. We don't have every one of Paul's letters, but we have some of them, some that the church collected as What is it that God wants us to know? What is it that God wants us to learn? What is it that God wants to tell us that will guide our mission? These churches were word-centered places. They were founded upon the faith. Secondly, they appointed elders in every church, Luke tells us. Now, the details of that are, we're unsure about. We don't know exactly, you know, what kind of vote, what percentage, how did they do that, did they nominate, blah, blah, blah. We don't know the specifics of the process, but we do know that there was organization, that there was structure, that these local churches were not just one-man shows, but they were governed by godly men. They were governed by elders, founded upon the faith, Governed by elders, and then lastly, they're connected. It had been some two years since they had returned to the original Antioch, to the church that commissioned them, the church that, remember, prayed and fasted for their work. And verse 27 says, they rejoiced that a door of faith had been opened to the Gentiles. And the church in Antioch rejoiced that this was not a Jewish church, that this was not an Antiochian church, if that's a word, that this was Christ's church, that this was made up of of Jew and Gentile, and it was glorious. One church, diverse in context, but one in Lord and one 
in mission. That's the way it's supposed to be. And so Luke reminds us through Paul and Barnabas' journey and through what they do, that, that Jesus is in the, bil- the business of planting churches. If this isn't a plug for Presbyterianism, I don't know what is. Word-centered, elder-led, connected to one another. It's how it should be. It's how the Bible intended it to be. It's how we're safe. It's how we're encouraged. It's how we grow in the faith. One of the highlights that I've had in my life is to be able to worship with a Presbyterian church in Mexico and with a Presbyterian church in Uganda. And many of you have had similar experiences, maybe not with the Presbyterian church, but just with the church of Jesus in other parts of the world. And what a beautiful picture it is of what God is doing. God is in the business. Jesus is in the business of planting churches. And so for all the good that we might do, we need to invest in the church. And if you have any history at the church, you know that you're in a good place for the investment of planting churches. This church and its connection, its history with Green Lake Presbyterian as as Cross Point churches has planted many churches in this area. And brothers and sisters, that's God's design. And that brings Jesus honor. And that brings Him pleasure. We need to invest in the church. As we do, as we are the church, that may mean that we suffer. But if it does, certainly we know that He is with us in that suffering. Certainly we know that there is a glory, a greater glory that awaits us. But we also know that is exactly what he intended for the growth and for the good of his church and of his kingdom. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for these great truths from Paul and Barnabas, these servants that have gone before us. How we long uh, to meet them face to face uh, in the new heavens and the new earth and to uh, hear their stories of gospel advance at the very beginning. And what a privilege we have as we're reminded here in Your Word, even as we are reminded in the discipleship hour, what a privilege we have to be part of Your work in building Your kingdom, in renewing creation, and making all things right as we proclaim the good news of what Jesus has done, as we love one another, as we plant communities of faith, and outreach, and love in a dark and needy world. O Spirit, give us wisdom. Give us Your grace as we go about Your work in this world, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.